Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 488 of the Constructive Criticism Podcast. I'm your host, Easy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Abe Stein. Yo. And Mason Esports Clark. Howdy, gamers. Do you say howdy ironically or because you're from the South? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, in your day-to-day life, how often do you say howdy? Less with people that are live here, more of people who don't live here. So non-Southerners, you say howdy to, but Southerners... No, no, I say howdy to Carmen all the time. Is Carmen Southern? She was born in uh, Florida and lived in uh, North Carolina. There you go. That's Southern. Yeah. But, like, you go into a Starbucks, and they're like, oh, you know, hey, welcome to Starbucks, and you don't say howdy there. No, no, no. I say hello, Gag, to them. Now, what is... Ridiculous. Speaking of caffeine, you might need some this episode because we are going deep into standard as we talk about the standard mega rankings covering four of the five RCs that have already concluded. Uh, before we do that, though, let's talk about always improving. It's the point of the show. We want to be doing everything we can every week to be trying to be always improving. It's, you know, Magic's a really tough game, and every week on the show, we, the hosts, try to join you, the listener, in working on ourselves and, like, working, whether it's life, whether it's magic, just do something within our week and share it with the listeners on how we, too, are trying to be better each week. Uh, and I'll go first this week. Uh, I had a really bad week. Uh, like, really, really, really bad. Um, but one of the things that I did uh, during the week is not let that affect me in a couple of ways. And one of the ways is that I decided to go play magic, even though I was in a really bad mindset. I used magic as an escape uh, and went in with the proper expectations. And I'll, I'll kind of cover that. Um, so the first thing is I was playing a Pioneer RCQ and I didn't want to play something hard. So instead I played something bad. Uh, I played Blue Eye Control. And when I say bad, like I'm not actually memeing. I actually think that this deck has close to zero good matchups in Pioneer. Um, and the one, of, but the reason that I played it was actually really important. Is that a couple of weeks ago on the show I talked about my paper uh, mechanics and how they were lacking, and so I wanted something really flowcharty so that I could actually work on paper mechanics specifically, uh, and it totally worked. I actually found myself able to really focus on my mechanics, making sure that I'm taking the proper time during each turn. Uh, you know, making sure that I'm you know drawing my cards correctly. I'm not knocking cards off the top of my deck, like just like dexterity issues. Completely out the window, had zero judge calls on myself throughout the day, uh, and it worked. Like I, I got back into kind of a rhythm, which was nice. That is nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that we talk about a lot too, where you talk to players about, and they're like, "Oh, should I do this? Oh, should I do that?" And so much of it matters on like what your goals are, right? And I think often people are like, "Oh, that's cool, but my goal is to win the tournament." But sometimes your goal is just to get out of the house for the weekend and work on some skill and magic, right? And you're a situation of like, I've got these, you know, dexterity slash like paper mechanic skills I need to work on. I just want to get out of the house for six hours and this will get the job done, you know? Yeah, I was really trying to slow down the game. Like I found myself playing so fast at the last RCQ that I took mm-hmm. six that I was like, man, I am like playing blazing fast for no reason. And one of the things that's really nice about Blue White is that it's very flowcharty. And so you can take the time to, like, go through the flowchart during the turns, uh, which really lets you slow down the game to the pace to let you think. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was also going to say, I, I, much like Mason, like being able to set that goal for yourself of something other than winning the tournament and then being happy with the result of I spent my time and energy instead of focusing on winning matches objectively, I'm going to focus on, you know, making sure my thought process is good. I'm going to take this event to get something else out of it. That's something that's so often, I think, that players who are really, you know, it, like it leads a lot of burnout if you're not able to do that for yourself in the times where you need it. Like sometimes you do just want to go play an event with a deck that you like and have fun and not care about the result too much. And that can be really, really, you know, healthy and helpful for you. So I'm glad you were able to be able to do that. What about you, Ed? Um, my always improving this week was uh, revisiting ideas that I had previously kind of ruled out in uh, my standard testing. Specifically, this was trying out the four-color Legends deck and the Esper Legends deck from um, the RCs over the weekend. You know, I feel like we even talked about on the standard episode, you and me, Spencer, where we were saying that kind of felt like these Plaza of Heroes like Esper decks needed to change form because the plazas didn't really make a ton of sense anymore and your mana was like good enough without it. You didn't have to be bound all these legendary cards and seeing that kind of, you know, be just being wrong about that and seeing that these decks actually do function really well and having the additional untapped sources for the high intensity spells they're casting, um, you know, was really successful in the positioning of a strategy like that was really successful for this weekend. Had me just wanting to go back and see what it is I've missed out on. Cause I was something where I was like, I think these decks are gone. Or I think these are these are not really what's important anymore. And so doubling back um, and even going as far as playing like that four color build from the Canadian Regional Championship, which is really interesting playing like rares that, you know, I was negging my teammates for drafting in team drafts, like Slogurk in like four copies in a standard deck and like four Takanumas and just all the stuff that kind of looks so crazy from like a just looking at the deck list perspective. If you're someone who just you know, looks at like goldfish for standard decks and just, you know, what the stock things are. Um, but really trying to understand the innovation and understanding what this archetype brings to the format as it's taking shape more as these RCs are happening. Um, is really my always improved moment. Yeah, I've been talking to a teammate, just, you know, we'll touch on Esper Legends later in the episode, but I've been talking to a teammate about just how wrong I was on that bonus episode today. Uh, we, we were talking about how he was starting to lean towards Esper Legends for the RC and like, why and like getting into it and so i'm kind of excited to talk to you about that deck uh as we get further into the episode yeah my thing's also about esper legends so i'll just sort of tie into this uh i didn't play the four color uh legends deck yet but i, I did play a lot of the esper legends deck specifically arnie's deck um and the deck was really impressive and i think where my disconnect came from on the deck is that i thought it was more of a mid-range deck and I think it's, like, just an aggro deck. And at first I thought I was like, oh, it's, like, Abzan aggro. But when I was playing it, I actually just feel like I can play these longer games. So I am really just, like, applying pressure constantly and curving out on people. And that's what's strong. Like, that plus abusing the channel lands. And it was, like, excuse me, pretty impressive uh, just how good your curve are. And, like, things like fi figuring out Adelaine in the deck and that sort of thing in comparison to having the Connive Legend, whose name I can't pronounce. Um I think is a really big difference in that deck. I, I saw Nassif, and I, I watched a good bit of the RC coverage for Europe, and, like, Nassif's deck was fine, but seeing, like, oh, wow, going, like, Skrelv into, you know, uh, Dinek into Adelaine or into Rafine is so strong. That's not even your best curve, you know? Like, just 
really impressive deck. So yeah, changing my perspective on it as well, and we'll get to it in the in the main topic. But changing my perspective on that deck from being just another flavor of the mid range strategies to being like a hate bears deck, like an, a, a mid range deck that is just trying to you know put enough barriers in play and have enough good combats to snowball the game. Um, really changed my my understanding of the format, the positioning of the format. So yeah. Uh, let's move on. I just want to quickly say that if you want to support the show directly, the best ways to do that are to head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Every week on the show, we have questions from patrons. We give shout-outs to new patrons. We do a live show for patrons. So head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Tons of uh, you know opportunities to support the show there, as well as the swag store. If you are watching the show anywhere or listening, there's probably a link to the swag store directly in the show notes or just on constructorism.com on the swag page. Uh, with that being said, Mason, why don't you talk to the listeners about our new sponsor? Yeah, we got a new sponsor. We're really excited. We have our Mercedes ready to go for this main topic. Before that, before you head on to Modern, make sure to stop over at our sponsor, Goblin Char Bargains, and pick up their Karn insurance. That way, whenever you're in Modern and you get Karned, you know they have your back. Karn insurance. Use code CCMTG at checkout to get 5% off your first three months with them. 5% off your Karn, Karn insurance. That's, you know, that's yeah, better I mean, than Geico. Big. If that artifact won't work, that's where you need card insurance. That's right. Can you imagine? You just like sit down at the table and you like activate your artifact. You're like, oh, that doesn't work. You're like, no, no, I have card insurance. You just bring out your you card can. insurance. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you pull out your card insurance card and now they know. I'm equipping I'll... this Colossus Hammer opponent and you're yeah. not stopping me. That's why I always have my card insurance. Yeah, I see Spencer's pouring himself some of juice right now. We, we just, we're really happy to have these sponsors and working with us. So, um, you know, Awesome. Let's move on to our main topic, though, Spencer. What what do we do? What's with these power rankings? What does this mean if you're listening to the show and you haven't listened in a little while? Yeah, so we took the results from uh, four of the RCs, basically all the RCs that had all of the deck lists available, and gave points according to the top 16s. So you get six points for first, five points for second, four for a top four, three for a top eight, and two for a top 16. Um, and... We, we kind of end up with five decks, and then if you combine decks, some other archetypes that are good, quote-unquote, as uh, for kind of a top eight. And I'm I'm just, just to get things out of the way, I'm just going to read it from top to bottom, or from bottom to top. Uh, at six points, we had Mono Blue. Uh, at 12 points in the honorable mentions, we had uh, Red Aggro decks. This includes Rakdos. Uh, then with 13 points, if you combine Jun, Grixis, and Black Red, you have the Black Red Reanimator decks. Um, and then in the actual power rankings in fifth place, you have, at 12 points, you have Green White Toxic, which was invented after a, after the first round of RC, so it didn't get as much time. Mono White with 15 points. Blue White Soldiers with 17 points. Esper Legends with 30 points. And then Grixis with 61 points. So... With that being said, let's dive into the honorable mentions really quick. Uh, kind of a simple summary of them. I'll go over Mono Blue first. This deck uh, is basically a protect the queen style tempo deck uh, that is trying to. Its key cards are. Oh my gosh, how do you say the Jin's name? Hadi Jin. Hadi Jin. Uh, just trying to protect it with different spells and then kind of close the game out with either a big flyer or cheap Talarian tears. I have a question. How, have you been playing more of this deck, Spencer? Because I know you were really high on it four weeks ago when I first got back from the show. We talked about it some. Is uh, that I right? Three weeks ago. Deck. Okay. 
have you continued to play it with like the floor the four flow of knowledge and stuff like that so i i am not up to four flow of knowledge i played as many as three flow of knowledge flow of knowledge okay. is a really important card in the fact that it lets it kind of wins games by itself mm-hmm. by letting you recoup some of the like tempo the the stuff that you the card advantage that you traded for tempo early in the game can then be turned into raw cards later Mm-hmm. I, I just mentioned it because until I played the Esper Legends deck, this was the number one deck on my sort of RC list. And what I was finding was that with the four flows and everything and sideboard plans, that this deck was like kind of weirdly a mid-range deck in some matchups post-board where you just sort of like grinded and then you you, you eventually became like a protect the queen, like in yeah. the way that some decks protect children, you just protected like Haughty Jin or whatever yeah. and you just one-shot them. One of the things uh, I said on the episode with of mythic cast with um mm-hmm. with yeoman five was i think this deck is actually like almost a control deck in the way that mm-hmm. it, in the way that the games play out yeah i believe that yeah i think the only card that changes that dynamic is when the deck is playing delver secrets because otherwise you know all of your threats are not coming down in a stage of the game to like be getting under anything with the exception of delver so um you kind of you're leaning on your interaction to generate space to land a win condition or to pull ahead with something like flow. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it definitely plays that way. Let's yeah. move on to the to the rest of the honorable mentions. We have red aggro decks. Uh, this deck is really interesting. Uh, I think that this this deck uh, has had probably the most top sixteens in like challenges since the format began. It's kind of crazy, uh, and I, I think it's totally reasonable. I personally really like the Black Splash. I'll just say that up front. Um, there's a certain card that costs white, 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 white that actually just dumpsters red removal decks right now. Uh, and honestly, I think that uh, if you're not prepared for this deck into this standard format, you're probably going to lose to it. Uh, some of its key cards are... I mean, its biggest key card is Thundering Raiju. Um, and then I would say... Uh, you know, just other hasty threats that come down before that and continue to put pressure on turn after turn after turn and really turn your opponent's removal into bad removal because that's bad equity trade is the really key important parts of this deck. Yeah, I mean, the the kind of biggest issue with the mono red deck is that once it was no longer, and it hasn't really been positioned in something where it's doing something unique to the format, it's getting under people by the way that its curve is. Um this black-red deck has kind of replaced the issue of the card quality not quite being there for a lot of the mono-red draws. Like, your, like, Phoenix Chick is not really the best card. Um, you know, a lot of your two-drops leave a lot to be desired, but, um, like, look at that black-red aggressive deck where it's able to play Bloodhead Harvester and play some of the more potent black cards um, and be, like, a smaller version of Grixis and a bigger version of Mono Red kind of lands it in a spot where it's actually able to like hang, which has been really, really strong. I, yeah. For what it's worth, the only black creature it plays is the Blood Eye Harvester. Yeah. It uh, plays Graveyard Trespasser. Oh, you're right. You're right. The one that one did. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I assume that's the one that's giving it the majority of the points at top four to the uh, Canadian RC in Vancouver. And it, it's interesting to me because it sort of looks to me like when sometimes you talk to players about like how to play red black in pioneer, you tell them that like you're sort of like trying to clear the way a little bit and go under them in a lot of matchups. And this deck sort of is doing a similar thing of like, I'm going to be aggressive and a little bit bigger than like a mono red deck is the specifically the Rakdos deck, obviously. 
Uh, and like my creatures are a little chunkier and they have a little bit more value, but they still like attack really well. And I think Blood Tithe Harvester and Graveyard Trespasser do a good job of incorporating that. So it's a really cool deck. Uh, why don't you talk to the listeners about the Reanimator deck, Mason? Uh, the Reanimator deck is basically what it sounds like. You're trying to get Atraxa into play using the Cruelty of Gix Saga. Um, there are a couple different versions of this, and really, you sort of people are trying to pick the version that's sort of best for the weekend. There's a Jund, a Grixis, and a Red Black. Jund and Grixis are much more like actually mid rangey uh, and much more about needing to get the Reanimator in play because they sacrifice some of the key interactive cards that the uh, normal versions of those decks play in order to play the cards to get tracks in. The black red deck is sort of this weird mid rangey deck that has a bunch of treasures. And so it can also just cast a track so weirdly easily. Um, and that deck is main goal is just to play a normal game and sometimes cast a Traxa. Uh, and the black one even sideboards out Traxa a fair bit, which is super potent. Yeah. And just to be clear, the, the ways you're getting treasure are the fable and the big score. Fable, big score dragon and the, Two drop with a uh, blitz. The two drop with blitz. Yeah, there's like a three one for two that. Oh, oh yeah, sorry, yeah. I know, I know what card you're talking about. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't and, and the Jun deck also has like armored scrap gorger, so it can also like hard cast a track. So almost, I think some builds of the Grixis build. I think they moved away from it. They were also playing the big score, and they could like make treasure tokens and had mm-hmm. some interest in being able to cast an Atraxa, but it really is primarily using, you know, blood tokens and fable. Uh, to like get a tracks in the bin and then using the cruelty of kicks is kind of a you know there's times i've in playing deck where i've found that even just casting a cruelty of kicks is like a big eldest reborn um is just really potent in the mid-range fights where they they start to slog where you're able to like get their children out of their hand and then um you know tutor up your removal spell that you need or your own threat um, could even be picking up, like, finding the Atraxa with your blood token in play so that you can use that before you get to Chapter 3 and bring mm-hmm. that back to really seal the game. So, um, yeah. so I was going to say that that was a really potent thing I saw in coverage a lot, where the players were setting up turn 6 Gicks. Uh, they were, sorry, they turn 6 Cruelty of Gicks because they would discard the Atraxa to blood and then slam Gicks uh, because of Corpse Appraiser being one of the most popular cards in the metagame. Mm-hmm. And just having main deck graveyard hate was such a problem, so they was just worth it because it turns out you know tracks a turn early is still very good <laughs> so awesome so that'll do it for the honorable mentions decks let's dive into our fifth place deck with 12 points we have green white toxic abe why don't you take it away with this one yeah the green white toxic deck was like probably the biggest breakout deck of um of the rc weekend two weekends ago um where it won the rc if i'm if I'm remembering correctly, right in the hands of Bryce Auto, or did he get second? Okay. Second with uh, with it, and so really it is kind of like a block constructed deck almost uh, of like the the offenders that you would expect, right? It's um, crawling chorus, venerated rot priest, uh, screlve, screlve's hive, uh, and really where I've found the biggest strength of this deck to be is that. Um, it has so much utility in its lands between the Seed Core and Murex that, like, Skrelv's Hive is, just being an enchantment, is really, really strong against a lot of the mid-range decks, especially the, the black mid-range decks like Grixis. And the ability to go wide like that is really, really strong. Um, but getting getting on the board early and getting wide and then never really running out of ways to continue to apply that pressure and either toxic out or damage out um, the opponent has just been a really, really impressive way um, for the games to go. And was really attacking the format from a unique angle in that first week it came out. It was like, 
you know, like I said, the breakout deck of the tournament. Um, I think it really changed the way that a lot of people prepared for the next round of RCs um, the weekend following. And, you know, I think that it play, placing fifth here um, in our power rankings after having that second place finish is kind of um, kind of testament to the ability for the format to, as a whole, to adapt to these kinds of things. The same way we saw Mono Red kind of show up and have a big week and then get, you know, people figure out the answers and figure out the way to build their decks to beat that. And then Greenway is attacking a different angle in a different way, play patterns people didn't quite get, and then they found ways to adapt their decks and kind of um, pare it down. This deck is still very strong and is probably my... If you're someone who really likes to play aggressive decks, and that's like the case for some people in my play group, um, where they have just like, I'm committing to this because this is very much my play style. You know, it's all about having good combats and like understanding how to sequence and like what the game's going to be about in terms of am I winning with toxic, am I winning with damage? Um, deck is really, really, really strong, and there's a lot of room there to uh, to even optimize it further, I think. Yeah, I think that Skrull's Hive, uh, well, I already thought that card was going to be good. I think that cor getting corrupted in this deck is basically trivial, so the creatures basically always have lifelink, and that is nonsensical in some games where it's like, okay, well, I don't actually know how to race this or beat this. Um, and I think it's a huge, huge plus for the deck. Yeah, the lifelink ability, I mean, I think there's kind of been a trend for the last month or so where the the decks have been getting more streamlined. The games have been becoming smaller and smaller and more about, you know, affecting the board and, and being ahead because the games are tighter. There's not as much of a mid-range slog going on because people have figured out ways to attack that. And um, as that's continued, you know, the ability to just have lifelink means that as people are trying to race you... Um, you know, especially when you have uh, the green-white uncommon that whenever you attack the toxic creature, it gets plus one, plus one. Um, the name's escaping me right now. But whenever you have that and a bunch of um, a bunch of the one-one... One, Slaughter Singer, by the way. Yeah, when you have Slaughter Singer and a bunch of the tokens, um, like, that's a really big life swing when you're already... You're like, I can't really afford to chump attack everything. Like, I have to chump attack everything away in order to try to win this race because I need to toxic them out. But the fact you're also going to gain like set like eight or nine life, you know, maybe 10 life on that combat and then still, you know, maybe keep one or two tokens, be able to make one with Murex and go again the following turn. Um, and it's reducing turns that your opponent has to kill you is, is really, really put like that card is the the reason the deck is as good as it is, in my opinion, in the metagame. And I think that um, the amount that people have had to adapt to it has, is really shown in, in the following week. Yeah, Seed Core is also another really strong land they get access to. Um, sort of reverse Pendlehaven, if you haven't seen it, gets plus two, plus one to a 1-1 one, one creature. Uh, and then also just lets you cast your Phyrexian creatures. Uh, just you know, there's like no life loss with that, which I think a lot of people just like tack that on because that's normally how these cards work, but not this time. And it just allows you to sort of have pretty good mana and also mana that like rewards you as the game goes on. So you, like, you know, you're not making these chump attacks as often, you know, and... I I think this deck is really impressive. And I think the part of the reason, excuse me, why we didn't see it do better this week is things like Night Clubber being picked up by like, you know, the Grixis players and stuff like that to answer this deck. And it's a moment of like, if they don't have those sort of cards, they have a really hard time with this, which we saw evident in the Japanese RC where the, the players just didn't have stuff for this and it was crushing them. So, yeah. Uh, up next, in fourth place, we have our Mono White deck. Um, this deck is 
basically modern white midrange. Uh, it relies a lot on simulated card advantage, uh, whether it be through its planeswalkers or through its kind of its small creatures uh, to hold down the hold down the game or kind of take over the game in different ways. Uh, and then kind of it follows the rules of engagement of this format of like playing a really powerful three man enchantment in the form of wedding announcement. And the restoration of a Ganju. Like that's that's true. That card actually that card has is been really basically impressive. basically the white fable to mirror breaker. You know, like you get you get a land out of it immediately. It's actually a good body. It's like a threat that people do have to deal with, and it's tough to deal with. And um, it also just you do get a little bit of advantage out of like there's times you get that planes, you get back your spirited companion or your reckoner bank buster that might have gotten duress or abraded or something, and like. Over the course of a really long game, that really adds up. Or even just getting back a uh, roadside reliquary, like this is what I consider the like going late kind of mid range deck, where it's trying to it's trying to grind the games out and and like slog in a way to make it so that like it's, it's saying the games aren't really going to be about getting under me, or I have plans for that, and I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you in a really long game. You have to do something to go over the top of me because I will grind you out. I want to mention that the one that won in Vancouver also happened to be playing eight Field of Ruin effects to really mm -hmm. punish the mana bases that people have been playing. And getting to do that in this format is kind of crazy. It's really, I mean, especially you know, in the finals, they're playing against the four-color Slowgurk Esper Legends deck, which played no basics, which was funny. You know, it's just sort of like last round of the tournament, it's all coming together. But, you know, in the other rounds too, there just aren't that many basics, right? Like a lot of these decks are playing you know, even the green-white toxic deck, I think, only had, like, five basics, like, at most or whatever. And so, like, maybe a little harder to get them. Uh, sorry, I, I misspoke. They are playing one basic. Sorry, I misspoke. Uh, they have one. So, like, you, you can get everybody, and that deck has, like, a bunch of utility lands you want to blow up, too. So, I, I think the mono-white having the eight Field of Ruins, maybe maybe eight's extreme, maybe one six. I don't know exactly. I'm not a Field of Ruins scientist. But it's a really interesting dynamic, like you mentioned there, Spencer, that really adds a lot to the deck. Yeah, I mean, he said on Twitter, too, uh, after winning, that he was like, you should just cut the basics from your deck because I have so many Field of Ruins that the one basic isn't really going to make that much of a difference for you. Because he was saying, like, even against the like the Four Color Legends player, I think he said he Field of Ruined him, like, five times in the match. Mm -hmm. But that match still went on, you know? Like, like I don't know, it's, it's still a lot of investment to do that. And I've been thinking about that, too, is, like, do you want to adjust? Are people going to be doing this in mono white? Is this thing to do? But I think it's more been a reaction to things like Mirix and the Seed Core, um, or like Plaza of Heroes being potent. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Then it necessarily being like, oh, I'm going to be able to punish the mana bases. I don't think it's trying to do that, right? Like I think I think that it just happened to be like I don't need 20 planes, right? Like there's just no reason for you to do it. Although yeah, outside eight, of lay down arms, eight is a lot. Yeah, yeah. lay down arms. Yeah. Yeah, if, if once you decide you don't want to play lay down arms, or you're okay with like you you identify that like you're okay with your lay down arms maybe being like one or two less, like one and a half less, able to answer things on average, then like doing this sort of thing makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I kind of want to talk about this deck it, going into this format, um, going into this new set. This is one of the two decks that people thought was the one like had the opportunity to be the best deck, right? People thought mm -hmm. it had a good Grixis matchup. People thought it had uh, a decent... To, or, well, I guess the Mono Blue was a question mark. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, where do you guys think this deck stands today? I really like its positioning. And I, and I like it for a couple of reasons. 
One is that I think, um, you know, kind of based on everything else that happened in the format over the weekend, um, the Grixis decks and the Esper decks both have pushed their range of the game they're trying to win in down some. So it's a lot easier for a deck like Mono White to actually be effectively going over the top of things. And in pushing their their decks down, I think that the Atraxa decks, which were honestly one of the hardest things for Mono White to deal with, um, those decks are performing worse as Denik has become kind of a like premier two-drop of the format across um, all of these Esper decks. And it's just been a really good option shutting down the reanimator strategies, you know, a lot of random graveyard synergies, and being a good creature to have a blocker against the um against the more aggressive decks that are popping up in the format so i think that as far as positioning goes the mono white deck is something you can't really forget about because you know if you are playing uh like grixis and you go the way of um i'm forgetting his name the player who won the uh naples event mm. like where you don't play many bank busters you're really not focused on the long game um, you're not going to play a game that takes a lot of time, then this mono white deck will eat you alive. And, uh, you know, before it was kind of a little closer on those margins, but I think mono white's positioning has kind of improved, even if, like, it still has its weaknesses, and, you know, it's obviously not infallible, but it, it's definitely in a really, really strong spot. Yeah, the mono white deck, to answer your question, in my opinion, is, like, fairly well positioned it has some bad things like i don't think it's like it's blue matchup is really bad especially as blue players just start playing. saying that because like i had somebody say that they didn't think that like they could beat mono white with blue and i was like i think that matchup is so good for blue yeah i mean they probably just aren't playing four main deck negates it's probably just what's going on there i mean like maybe they are and they're just misevaluating their role in the matchup but um i think the deck has like exploitable weaknesses but like abe mentioned if grixis players are trying to adapt to like esper legends and soldiers and toxic and fight those fights they're gonna lose on these fights and it's a lot of like i think picking your spot in sort of a classic standard environment of like okay well the metagame's rotating where do i want to be on things you know and this is sort of trying to be like yeah grixis is trying to really fight you know toxic aggro decks or whatever then like okay this is a great spot to be so yeah it what's what's interesting is like the format is almost about this deck in grixis in a lot of ways where it's about getting either getting under the fables and the wedding announcements and the the what's the other three management called the restoration of a ganja yeah restoration or it's about like going bigger than these decks right with like a tracks or stuff or it's just being these decks so I think this deck just has a solidified spot in this metagame, and how you build it will depend, like many other mid-range decks throughout history, on how you see the format looking. Yeah, yeah. I don't, it's always weird to me that people also haven't tried like make disappear in this deck and things like that. Like maybe they have, and it hasn't done well. But I have not seen many people try to like splash with this deck. So I think a lot of the reason people haven't splashed because I've thought about doing it is that you kind of are incentivized to splash with a lot of tapped blue sources because your laydown arms are really like something you're leaning on. Sure. So like if you play a bunch of deserted beaches and Attercar wastes, it starts to make it so that you can't like lay down arms a shieldred with sure. much consistency, and that's like definitely something you want to do. Um, what I will say is really impressive about William LaHaye's list from that he, that he won that RC with. Uh, is 
he moved away from previously the X played a lot of like farmhand the the one one that searches for a planes a lot of the plane searchers in playing all these field of ruins in order to say like i'm not going to thin all the planes out of my deck and then play these lands that need me to have more planes in my deck was able to play like he played cathar commandos and more spirited companions and four bank busters um and especially cathar commando is a card that like I can only imagine in a world where we're worried about Skrell's Hive, we're worried about, um, you know, Fable the Mirror Breakers, worried about uh, opposing wedding announcements, Restoration of Ganjos, and with cards like our own Restorations and Sarah Paragon, it's actually a really, really good way to go from amassing, like, a bunch of positive card advantage to really making exchanges on the board, which is somewhere where I feel like the Mono White decks have had issues um, in my experience with these other builds. And so that's something that I definitely wanted to note as like, you know, even mono white decks are adapting to what's going on um, in terms of the way they're building. And I think that the way that, you know, William navigated that in saying, you know, kind of finding an opportunity to uh, not play some of the mopier creatures to help you hit a bunch of planes. Cause he said, that's, I'm fine not doing that. Um, that Cathar Commando was definitely a card that impressed me uh, when I was thinking about it. To me, with 17 points, we have blue-white soldiers based on why you talk about this deck really quick. Blue-white soldiers is a deck that is looking to abuse its mana curve, kind of. Uh, it's sort of, you know, a lot like these other decks we're talking about. It's trying to get underneath these three-man enchantments that are playing to the board. And the blue-white soldiers deck is sort of saying, hey, if you play the soldiers payoff instead of some of these other things, you get some really strong cards. Uh, some of those key ones being like, well, Dinic is like one of the hate bears we talked about being really big. Harbin, the Vanguard uh, adversary, like, and lets you draw cards. Uh, then you have, I believe it's like Sky something, lets you, all your soldiers get flying. Um, yeah, it's Sky Strike Officer. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you just have a really good way of putting a lot of pressure on the board early and then having some payoffs for playing all these soldier cards. And you actually just, you know, sort of like the Infect deck or like the Red deck, you're just sort of going under these other decks. And this one probably has a little bit of more game going long than those other two decks do, but give up some potency by doing that. I, I think that one of the really important things about this deck is it was, it, one, it's had a longer time in the sun than some of the other aggressive decks. And the reason that it's had that is it's had a usable mana base for an aggressive deck longer than any other aggressive deck other than Mono Red. And mm -hmm. because of that, I think that these decks are pretty tuned. Uh, they're they're pretty popular. And it, it gets to use a lot of the other aggressive cards that, you know, like it gets to place, you know, Skrell. It gets to, uh, you know, use Plaza of Heroes. Uh, you know, some of the things that some of the other decks are doing. I, I think this deck, uh, you know, one of the, the key things that I think about when I see this deck is like, is it also it's three drops and that might just be a pinching point in the format. But getting to be another Thalia deck, but that also gets to play like, Siege Veteran, and you, you mentioned Skystrike Officer, uh, they're, they're almost attacking from different angles in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I mean, the only new card in the deck list, I'm, I'm double-checking to make sure before I say this for sure, yeah, the only new card is, I guess, Mishra's Foundry and uh, Skrelv. There's like a few copies of Skrelv in, in these decks. So oh it's gosh, literally I other... Said, I said Plaza of Heroes instead of Mishra's Foundry. And I definitely meant to say Mistress Foundry. No, this one apparently played one plaza as well. But yes. I, I, I know, but I was I did mean to say Mistress Foundry. I just saw the Plaza of Heroes and it came out of my mouth. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it's uh but it's really like it's like if green white toxic 
is a block constructed deck. This is actually just last block's block constructed deck. Um, and it's still, you know, really potent. I think it's really engaging in the format. And what we see in the way the format has shifted over the last couple of weeks, um, the rules of engagement for the format are you need to be playing to the board, you need to have a game plan for winning on the board. And um, this deck does both of those things, as well as having a way to, like, trump that, right? Like, Skystrike Officer makes a bunch of 1-1s that go up the ground at the same speed that Skrull's Hive does. Um, you know, eventually, those 1-1s, not only are they drawing you cards from your Skystrike Officer's ability, but, you know, your Harbin is going to seal the deal by just making them jump over everything. You have Denix to disrupt, um, to disrupt your opponents who are trying to reanimate on you. You know, you have... Folly is to slow down everyone. It, it really is just a, a bunch of the good cards um, supported by the rest of the tribal theme, and your mana is really consistent, like Spencer said. Um, but but I just want to point out that, like, overall, a lot of these decks that are performing in the, like, you know... And, and even as we, like, move up the list, um, a lot of the, the trends for decks that performed well are the ones that are seeking to play to the board, and Soldiers is just a very good deck at doing it. I'm kind of curious, what are your guys' opinions on the placement? Like, what is this deck's place in the metagame? What do you think it has problems with? I think it's just a worse version of Esper Legends. It's my sort of new, after seeing the new ones, like, that's my big complaint. Like, it has better one-drops, or it has more, I should say. But I'm not super in love with this deck. It's, like, totally fine. Um... Yeah, I, I don't have much positive to say about it, but I don't have much negative to say either. Yeah, I think that it's something where it's it's funny. It was like, you know, this is probably going to be just like one of the best decks. It was one of the best decks before uh, Phyrexia came out. But it feels like it's kind of been forgotten about in a lot of the like decks people are talking about or thinking about. And it is still a good deck. But I think that, you know, much of what Mason's saying, um, I think it's good because of the fact it's playing by the rules. It's doing the right kind of thing. But you're able to do such better things and more powerful things that, that would be, um, in the same space. That would be exactly where I would go, is, like, if we're going by what, like you said, the rules of engagement are for the format, it technically follows them. But I don't know that it's following them in a way that makes me want to do this instead of other stuff. Yeah. Like it's, I don't know that it's setting its own rules, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's following the rules. It's not really dictating them. Right. Uh, coming in with uh, 30 points, we have Esper Legends. This is a deck that you guys both wanted to talk about. Uh, Mason, do you want to take it away on this one? Sure. Uh, Esper Legends can be built a couple different ways, but essentially this deck is just... An Esper deck that's trying to curve out and then use some of the powerful legends and standard use cards like Plaza of Heroes to make it so your mana is really playable, and then it abuses the channel land. So Odawara, Agamcho, and Takanumi are all lands that abuses that often you can activate those cards for one mana on all of them, and you sort of just curve out on people. Uh, I know Abe sort of mentioned it like a hate bear deck. I sort of mentioned like a beatdown deck. I'd be curious to have a more conversation about that. But my experience in playing this deck is just you sort of curve on people and you present things like Denic or Thalia into Rafine or Adelaine, and then just apply a lot of pressure and then slam a Shieldred and just sort of kill them. Especially the big innovation to add a wedding announcement to the main deck. I think it did a lot to really help this deck. And I think Esper Legends is probably best or second best deck in the format right now. Um, I know it won the Sainer Challenge as well this past weekend. It's just really good and has a lot of customization to it. 
Yeah, this is one of those decks that we talked about not... I mean, we talked about this in the pre Like, I just wasn't impressed with it. I didn't quite understand why to do this over some of the other mid-rangey stuff that you could be doing in the format. And I think there are actually a lot of reasons that I was missing out on. I do think that Adeline has also changed my mind a little bit. Um, but I do think that being the best Dahlia deck in this format is actually important. Um, especially for a deck that doesn't actually play a lot of ways to like beat yourself up with that. Uh, I, I, I think I underrated that quite a bit. Yeah, I think the value of Thalia um, has really started to show up as, you know, there's, we've been trying to make, well, decks have been trying to make room to slow down uh, the pace with which they're interacted with, especially as the other aggressive decks have come into the format, where, you know, there are times where even in your, like, like when, I'm, when I've been playing Esper against uh, Toxic, we're being able to play like a turn two Thalia on the play so they can't play Skrelv's Hive on turn two is really, really disruptive and really problematic for them. Um, where Yeah, because because there's so many of the like non-creature permanents that matter, um, slowing those down has been really, really important. I will also say that, you know, a lot of the... For me, a lot of the success in Esper Legends comes from, like, I, to, to speak to what you're saying, Mason, about me saying it's a Hate Bears deck and you saying uh, it's like a beatdown deck, I think it really is a marriage of both. You know, I think that, um, I think in understanding that, like, all of their two drops are two drops that are selected to be attacking the format from an angle that's going to make it difficult for the opponent, right? Thalia is going to make it difficult for a lot of decks. Um, Denik is going to make it difficult on the random rare decks and on the aggressive decks because it has lifelink. Uh, and it's just hard to remove. It also is okay against the, the mid-range decks of the Disturb um, backside. Like, it has a little bit of value. It's just a good role-playing card. Um, and then the, the Razor Verge Transmogrifier, the 3-1 that can be returned from the graveyard if your opponent has a bunch of non-basics. All of those are really thorns in the side of, like, most of the decks in the format. And then leaning into that understanding of, okay, my two drops, like Skrelv into my two drops is going to be my strongest thing to do because all of the removal that people are playing costs two mana is going to be following that up with Rafine or by extension when this is kind of the innovation of Adeline being your like Rafine's, you know, five through five through seven, uh, make it so that you're now presenting problems in the form of aggression because these cards are so good on rate and so good at building a presence, but also still represent like still presenting these other obstacles to the game plan of uh, like Athalia making it hard to have the time to stem the bleeding or Adenic making it so that you can't get all the value you need to keep up in a game that's that long because you're shut out on some of it. Um, or like, you know, a couple counters get on there from Rafine and now suddenly you can't race effectively at all. And then being backed up by Shouldred, the ultimate like, I guess of the format, the ultimate threat that requires answering means you're really just making a house of cards happen, which to me is what I like consider really being hate bears identity is it makes a house of cards and then wins through combat. And so, well, I think that a big part of the house of cards is those aggressive things. I think that the other surrounding factors are why I like refer to it as a kind of hate bears deck, but I think we're both on the same page there. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. One of the things mentioned earlier in the episode that we didn't talk about yet in this part of the segment is its ability to play and kind of abuse the legendary lands itself. 
Mason, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this deck plays, I think, eight of them. It plays, like, three Aganja, three Odawara, and two Takanumi, at least the list I had ripped. Uh, and that's, like, a pretty big deal because those lands are pretty powerful, and they're also just lands. And they're, they're cost one less to channel for each legendary creature you control when your deck is, like, 96% legendary creatures just means they cost so little and they provide such big impact. So like your opponent taps out for a shieldred and you like, you know, played, you know, Rafine on three and then you played Adeline on three and left a mana up just means like, Oh, I get to Odawara your shieldred now like slam into you or like I get to attack in with impunity because I can a Gonjo and still develop afterwards. And Dude, I straight just up just things. forgot about the channel effect against this deck the first time I played against it in a while which mm-hmm. I don't know why I forgot, but I definitely got a Gonjode real hard and was like, I'm a moron. Like, I'm so... That was, no, that was my experience, too, when I played against it in some Mana Traders matches, was I just, like, attacked with something, and they had, like, a mana open, I was like, there's nothing they can have here, and then they just dealt four to my creature, and it died, and I was like, there's something they can have here, and, and that, like, really... That's where the, the light kind of went on for me in really a lot of the strength of the deck, was not only do they get access to these lands at their best, when these are really powerful effects to have, you know, untaxed by Thalia at instant speed, uncounterable. Um, but also that they have access to playing like 28 or 29 lands in the deck that needs to curve out, where then drawing your excess lands, because you're able to play, you know, eight or nine of these means that it's not the worst thing in the world. Because even if you're like, you're looting away your other lands or Graffine, or you have to play one out, eventually the land you top deck is going to be a spell you know, some amount of the time, be that a plaza protecting your shieldred or, you know, whatever your, like your Rafine, whatever your actual threat that you're winning with is, or one of these channel lands being a way to to impact the board and get another combat step or get another, you know, get another threat back and keep keep the pressure on. And really that, you know, and speaking about the four color deck, um, playing Slogurk in this deck, and I, I'm going to give you the text on Slogurk because I don't, Imagine the name of the Oh, do we really. need readers? Do, do people not know what Sl- Slogarkian does? Yeah, it's a make, it's make a yours. one. I'm gonna do this without looking because I'm very familiar now. It's a one blue green three three legendary creature with trample, uh, and it says whenever a land is put into your graveyard from anywhere, uh, put a plus one plus one counter on it. So it has ability to grow when you channel a land, which is really nice. And then also whenever you can remove three plus one plus one counters from it to. Re- return it to your hand from the battlefield. So if you get three counters on it, you can return it and pick up those lands as well. Uh, Because when it leaves play, be that it dies or it goes back to your hand or gets exiled, you get to return up to three target lands from your graveyard to your hand. So this enables some really, really weird things going on where like that four color build plays uh, like four Takanuma because that can just randomly be like giant growth my thing and get a card back and then when the slogurk dies you're like looping the takanuma and it really I, I i cannot say enough about this bulk rare because it really changed the way that i think about these esper decks and it's also just like a very strong creature because it doesn't that cut down to boot yeah yeah slogurk's nice let's talk about the deck that everybody's been waiting for us to talk about this whole episode coming with 61 points literally double the next best deck a deck that I don't think is double as good as the next X deck is Grixis Midrange. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that on Grixis, like, it has double the points of the next best deck, Esper, but it had to have, like, three times the metagame share of Esper, right? Maybe more. 
I would across all the right. events. Like I know it was like thirty percent of the field was Grixis. Yeah, I here here's the thing. Like uh, I've heard multiple people say, like if you don't register Grixis for these RCs, you're an idiot, and I just don't think that's true. Um, so so for those who don't know, like if you are just like finally getting ready to do your standard preparation, Grixis has been the best deck for a while um it, it it basically is built on the back of blood tithe harvester corpse appraiser shieldred and fable of the mirror breaker as kind of this like mid-range package um the it, it you know it has a lot of different ways that you can build it there's a lot of different cards that you can pick to either win the mirror or you know kind of fight different fights my personal favorite uh, i think the one that won in japan was playing was blood uh, blood coil serpent um, one of the things that the deck was also doing was playing Mendex Brotherhood's End uh, to fight the Bono White decks, um, as as well as the Soldier's decks. Um, overall, like, it's just a good mid-range deck. Like, it, it's really, really good. Uh, I I don't know, what, do, what are your guys' thoughts on, on where Grixis stands right now? Um, Grixis is, like, good. I mean, I, I think it, it's awkward because we should talk about Grixis in this section and not about, like, why it's more than double, I think. I don't know. It's a personal thing. But, like, Grixis is good. It gives you a lot of options to fight what's going on. There are enough tools in this format because we live in a world where standards designed around Rogue Refiner variants that you can build your Grixis deck to fight just about anything and players are really like that and you can adapt to what's going on. We see that happen, like, you know, two weeks ago, they got abused by the Green Knight Toxic deck. Then the next week, they're like, okay, we have Nightclub or we have Malfunction. We can stop these sort of things. And then players are like, okay, well, can you stop this? And then new problems present to Grixis. So presenting problems to Grixis is like one part of the metagame. And Grixis's job is to be prepared for what's going on that weekend in a very similar way to Mercad, which you see is always very popular back in Modern, in a very similar way to Rakdos and Pioneer, which you see is very popular in that deck always. Uh, Grixis is really good it's definitely not a punt to play that deck and you just need to be like sort of aware of what's going on and also just don't over metagame your deck and you're sort of already left with like a totally reasonable choice um i think the power level in this format is fairly flat uh which is part of why grixis is able to adapt yeah I, so. I, you, though, as you were talking about like its job is to bob and weave right like it is if it, it is like the ultimate boxer in this format it takes a punch and then figures it out and punches right back uh, and it, mm -hmm. it, but if you get it wrong, you know you're taking you're taking a hook shot to the chin, and like that's that's rough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I don't know if either of you guys watched the um, the European RC top eight mm -hmm. at all, um, or familiar with with the decklist, but the like quote unquote stock uh, stock Grixis decks and the deck that won that event look pretty different in a couple of ways. And a lot of the stock Rixus decks, you know, they were good. They performed well. You know, they converted some players top eight, some players cash with them. They were kind of all over the place. You know, just good, solid decks to be playing. But I think it's really, really telling about, like, telling of the tale of Rixus that the deck that won an RC was the one that was forward-thinking in the way that it was presenting itself, where it was playing a lot more cheap removal. It didn't care about cards like Reckoner Bankbuster as much because it wanted... You know, to the player's mission in the post-game uh, interview was he didn't want to have cards that took that much time and investment to get cards back out of. He was much more interested in playing the board. Um, 
And what that meant was that when he played against Esper Legends, you know, kind of the breakout deck of the weekend, three times in the top eight, he beat it all three times. You know, his deck was built to have the right answers for the kinds of things that he was going to be worried about. Um, and that really, really paid off. And so if you're someone who takes the time to consider how is it I'm building my Grixis deck, you know, to be that, have that read on what the decks are going to perform well on the weekend are and what those dynamics are, it's going to be hard to argue against Grixis. You know, I think that this was probably the best deck to register in on the weekend and it, it came through that way, right? Because you're the most consistent against everything because the power level is pretty flat, your cards are consistently good, and then also you were hedged in the right ways for the way that the weekend shaped out. But knowing how to do that and having the confidence to do that, you know, is, is tough. And a lot of times if you're just going to play Grixis a week behind, your deck's still going to be fine, but you're going to find yourself battling uphill against players who come in with, you know, good plans or seek to exploit what they think like the, right? Like looking at the deck list from this weekend, okay, this was the best way to build Grixis. If I assume everyone's going to do this, how can I exploit that? Understanding what that thought process is going to be like from the rest of the metagame becomes the challenge of being the Grixis player. One of the questions I've gotten about like, it is actually about Grixis. Like, hey, what is your Grixis? Like, what, like how, how is it going? And like, to me, Grixis is not off the table for me to play at the RC. However, I don't see a reason, like, I've played a lot of Grixis, I feel comfortable in the Grixis mirror, so for me, like, a lot of the time that I'm going to put into Grixis, if I play it, will be the week leading up to the RC. Like, that will be the time where I'm like, what does the metagame look like? What do I expect at this tournament? How do I want to build this midrange deck to do it? Where, the, like, the rest of my time right now is spent, like, putting my, putting, like, pen to paper or, like, you know, cardboard to table and, like, actually seeing, is this viable is this real for the other strategies in the format yeah i think you're just wasting your time if you play grixis right now i mean may, that, that's not fair maybe you aren't as well experienced with mid-range decks and maybe you've got to get used to this and maybe that's not your cup of tea but if you've played grixis type decks and mid-range type standard decks in the past and you know how to like metagame your deck in tune i cannot imagine wasting any of my time playing the grixis deck until the week before the rc all your information is informed by like a week or two beforehand because players are going to start getting cards and that's the result and they're going to start buying cards and you shouldn't be caring about what Grixis was doing three weeks ago. Like what, who cares what Grixis was doing three weeks ago? It's a metagame deck. So like you have to metagame for the weekend at hand. So if you want to do that, the best way to do it and you have the ability, maybe you don't have the availability of your arena or card hoarder or whatever, or mana traders, but like just play the other decks and get an idea for how they work so you can be ready. Like what are you doing yeah. playing Grixis? Yeah, to boil it down, I would say if you spend your time figuring out how to beat Grixis right now and then build Grixis to beat that without sacrificing a bunch of other places, you're going to have a really good Grixis list. But yeah. if you spend your time just being like, how do I, uh, I'm just keep on playing build to Grixis, you're going to be one of the Grixis players who's getting beat. All right. Anything else you guys want to say about this format before we move on? I want to make it really clear that Grixis is good. Just in yeah, case I think we all think Grixis is good. There's yeah, just yeah. like, yeah, just want to make that clear. If you play bad Grixis, like, like quote, quote unquote bad Grixis. Even bad if you play, Grixis, even you know, don't play excellent bad Grixis, Grixis don't play, <laughs> Yeah, you don't play super like you know groundbreaking Grixis. It's still a really good choice, even if you're a week behind, mm -hmm. like or two weeks behind or three weeks behind. The the floor in your cards being the Grixis cards is just so good, and there's a lot of room to uh, to just play good games and have have a game against everyone yeah 
All right, that is going to do it for our main topic. One of the ways for the show is to go to patreon.com slash ccmg. We mentioned it earlier in the show. One of the benefits you get is you get to ask questions on the show. And it's the only way to get your questions into the bonus episodes. So head on over to patreon.com and we post a link in the Discord where you can ask questions like Adrian asks, how do I take good notes while I'm playing online? How do I improve my memory of games in person? Woo! Uh, can I go, yeah, can I go first go. on this one? Yeah. Yeah, so this is something um, that I actually have gone over in coaching uh, with players before, is taking good notes when you're playing online. Um, I would say that there's a couple ways you can do it. You can either, um, I guess if you're playing on Arena, um, I would say if you don't have access to replays, locally record some of your matches when you're playing and then go back and take notes on it if it's too hard for you to do in-game. But um, making a note of, like just immediately after the game ends, thinking about, okay, what happened in that game? You know, what were the pivotal turns? What were the decision points? Um, which can be hard on Arena compared to Magic Online where you have the replays, but replays are a really valuable tool for that. Um, and as far as taking notes, you know, that really also depends on the questions you're asking yourself during the game. I know that there's like some really strong exercises of just asking yourself, okay, what is it that I know or think is in their hand based on how they played? And then writing that down and then, like doing that every turn or reflecting on that as the game progresses, but really getting in the habit of taking the notes in the game really matters. As for memory of games when you're playing in paper, I would say something I would start doing would be when you're keeping life totals on paper, write down next to your life total whenever it changes, what caused the change. Um, you can either like, you know, shorthand that with like, uh, the player who I learned this from, they actually did it a lot in Legacy. So it'd be like, they're playing uh, like a shardless bug mirror and be like, okay, I went from like 20 to 19 from polluted Delta. And then, you know, my opponent took two on a thought seize. So like they would write those things down. So when you look back at the game, you see all of the ways that life was lost and how the turns kind of flowed and you can see them all sequentially in that way. Um, and that, that, that can help a lot. I have a, I have a real problem with this in, in, uh, Adrian in my own personal life because I have really bad short-term memory. Um, and one of the things that I'll find is like if I'm playing Arena and I'm sideboarding and I don't remember what I just played against game one, especially if I won, I'm like, oh, I I should not be playing Arena right now. I'm clearly not focused on the right things in playing Magic. I need to take a step back. So that's, that's the first thing is like when are you getting lost? I think is a question that you should be asking yourself. Um, one of the recommendations that I would give, I did a series called Quest for 10, where I tried to get 10 wins with every metagame deck in standard um, and take notes on on the, on the every match uh, through that process until I got to 10 wins. And it, it actually helped me a lot with this specifically because it forced me to like look back on the matches and ask myself questions like, how did I win? Why did I win? What happened in the match? And eventually that just becomes muscle memory because you're, you know, your brain, you're stretching that muscle in your brain. Um, that would be my recommendation is to try something like that. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, assuming you're running notes to review, like Abe said, if you don't have, if you don't know this, Magical Line records all your games when you play. And you can click the gear in the top right and go to game history and it has the last 200 games I think you've played. So if you didn't know that, that's a great way to go look, go look over your games. It's a great way to improve. Um, assuming that that's what you mean by taking notes, um, just 
take a little bit of time and like write stuff down. One thing that I tell people to do who are really bad at sort of, they say like, oh, I can never figure out what my opponent has. Oh, I'm really bad at this. Is I tell them just to write down what they think their opponent's hand is starting like on turn three and just update it. And, you know, and it's just like, okay, I think they have these four cards and like they do something and it wasn't one of those four cards and you like take a second to think about it and you don't worry about winning that match because that's not your goal when you're playing. Your goal is to work on this and improve it. Uh, as for your real life, in person ones, you obviously can't do that. Um, I the people I coach that just have a little notebook and they like write down a quick summation of the matchup as soon as it's over and they're done saying, you know, oh, good luck, blah, blah. And they write that down that way. They have it for later and they're able to, you know, ask questions or whatever because they have just written it down really quickly. Um, that would be the main thing uh, that I would say. But I, I'm also a little unsure of what you mean by notes, so I might not be answering the question right. And I'm sorry if that's the case, bud. Uh, another way you can participate in the show is by leaving a YouTube comment. Uh, we got one that says, found you from a tweet recording uh, regarding hate towards a member of the crew, and I don't see where it comes from at all. Fantastic jobs. Great interview. Best of luck with the show moving forward. Didn't know about the Chapin book. Thanks for sharing. Man, this Chapin book is like getting a lot of love on this podcast lately. I'm a big proponent of no level magic. <laughs> it's so no more talking about it until Chapin sponsor us. We're, we're holding the line now. We've shown what we can do, and now we're holding the last time. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just want to kind of publicly address this. Um, I, a few months ago, we got a patron that his entire goal on to join our patron was to be mean to me. Um, it was pretty obvious. Um, that person was refunded. Uh, I didn't want. I didn't want their money, and they were blocked uh, on Patreon. Um, since then, we've received reviews, uh, or, or specifically our review, um, that was in the same vein of the rudeness. Um, and, and honestly, like, uh, I'm 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 a really transparent and like open person. Uh, I have been doing this show for longer than every job I've ever had in my life. I have given more hours of this to to this show than Mason and Abe combined, than like than most people give to anything. Uh, and so, like, if you don't like me, that's fine. Like, that's okay. Uh, but like, I'm 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 constructing criticism in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not because the show's bigger than me. It's bigger than Mason. It's bigger than Abe. But, like, it's my show. Like, it's my baby. <laughs> um, and it's going to stay that way. Like, I, I think that, you know, we did something very different on the show this week. And I'm, I'm going to be really curious after the show to talk to Mason and Abe about how they felt the show went. But, like, it was me that made that change. And I'm I'm curious how, how they felt like it went. Um, the other thing is, is, like, you know, when this is just, like, general advice. You don't know how somebody across the internet is doing. Like you don't know their mental state, you don't know their life, um, and one of the things that I that I have found myself doing sometimes is like being mean to like celebrities, uh, that like or like sports fan sports people that I don't like, and I I constantly find myself like deleting those tweets or, or before I hit send or like because like I you know what like I'll give a I'll give an example uh of a of a person that like I just wish would stop. Um, it's a player for the Memphis Grizzlies, um, who just like hits people in the junk. And like, I want, to, I like, I feel some sort of like natural human reaction to want to tell this person to stop it. 
and that they're being like an idiot. But like, who cares? Like a thousand other people are going to do that. And I don't know his mental, like he could be having a bad day and like I could be pushing him to be even worse. And, uh, you know, my mental health has not been good right now. So when we got that review, I, I wasn't in a good space and I really appreciate, uh, Abe and Mason. And, and the listeners for the kind words, but like, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, Mason has been one of my best friends now for years. Like, and what, what's really funny is one of the things, one of the pieces of feedback that we got was that I, I won't say the exact words, but basically that like, I'm on Mason's junk and I'm going to be honest. I am probably the biggest Mason Clark fan in the world. Like, and why wouldn't I be? He's like one of my best friends. I'm going to cheer for him. I also trust Mason. I'm going to ask for his opinions. I think Mason's better at magic than me. I, what It would be ridiculous for me not to use Mason as a resource. And if you don't like that, like, I don't think you get what this show is about. Like, in all honesty, I just think you don't get it. Like, we had a whole episode of surrounding yourself with greatness. That was the jo- name of the John Finkel episode. Like, why wouldn't I want to know what Mason thinks, ask Mason questions when I have Mason's time, if I trust him? And, like, the same thing goes for Abe. Like, if I have a question about something that I think Abe is good at, I'm going to ask Abe. And so, like, some of the feedback I think is mean-spirited, but also I just think that, like, we, if you're listening to the show and you don't like that for me, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop. Like, I, I'm just not. So, and I just want Abe, you and Mason to know, like, I love you guys. Like, I, I, like, doing the show with you is, like, the highlight of my week. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's dope. <laughs> love you guys. But to, to the listeners, I, you did get some people like, are you quitting the show for good? I'm not. I'm here. I just, I, you know, we got a bad review that was really mean, and I just, like, I didn't want to do the show that day. Like... I don't have to. <laughs> I So, anyway. I appreciate you guys' kind words before last week's episode. But I thought that it would be important for me to be clear that, like, you know, I'm a human. And, like, words can hurt. So, yeah. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, you can join the Patreon Discord. That is for patrons of $5 or more. Uh it's really awesome. We got some awesome people in there. There's also a public Discord for all of Easy Game Media, as well as the YouTube comments. We just, you know, read that one. Um, and then Twitter, uh, at CCMTG on Twitter. We did a poll today, and you guys ruined it for me. You ruined it. It was perfect. And then it was ruined. And so we got to get over the fact that you don't like modern, man. That's like, I, I, it's fine. You hate, It's all good, man. People like modern, you like standard. That's fine, baby. I'm not gonna lie. You, no, you I have don't. no idea what you're talking about right now because <laughs> I was at work all day. So I'm, it's okay. It's okay to not like modern man. I like Pioneer man. Good. Go go vote on Pioneer. You could be the third one. <laughs> <laughs> Legacy players out here starving. They just got a bunch of new cards today. They're like, did they even test for this format? No, they didn't. We move on. <laughs> they hate new cards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we kind of wrap up overall, though, I just want to mention that we do have a new segment at the end of the show that I forgot to mention about what we, we talk about the things that we learned while recording this week. Uh, so stay tuned for that. 
If you want to check out the rest of the network, head on over to constructorcriticism.com and see uh, right now we got Mythic Cast with Michaela and myself, as well as Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. You can leave a like, comment, sub, uh, and review for the show. It's really helpful. It's like probably the best way to support the show if you don't have the funds to like go to Patreon or whatever. Uh, it, it really does help. Uh, and you can go bury some mean reviews. You know, just head on over to the Apple Podcasts and get that thing out of the way. Uh, where can people find you, Abe? Uh, they can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings, where my DMs are open for increased about coaching, um, as well as you can email me over at more nothings at gmail.com for uh, any coaching inquiries you have. Awesome. Mason? Uh, you can find me each and every week over at Card Kingdom. I'm writing an article. This week it is all about modern and Elishnorn in it. Uh, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. And if you're interested in coaching, I'm really close to booked up. I have about eight people a day right now. And I just can't fit many more in and live a normal life. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can reach out to me via DM on Twitter. My Twitter is Mason E. Clark. You can also reach out to me uh, via email, MasonEClark at gmail.com. Or on Patreon at patreon.com slash, I think it's the Mason Clark. You type Mason Clark MTG, I pop up. I don't remember what my thing is, to be honest. But you can find me at Spencer13H. I am not accepting new uh, coaching right now. Uh, so if you are currently in coaching with me, uh, I'm going to continue it with you. But uh, I got a new job today. Not sure what my my future will look like as far as that time. So, uh, so yeah. they're all coming to me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Abe's <laughs> like, let's go. Uh, Mason's booked up. Spencer's booked up. It's all Abe time. <laughs> Abe time is the new podcast on the Constructors. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'll go for, I just want to talk about what we learned on the show this week uh, before we say goodbye. And uh, you know, I I'm not gonna lie. Like I I had pretty strong feelings about. Well, I'll, I'll go. I'll go this way. Uh, I I didn't I didn't feel like there was that much of a difference between the reanimator decks until you guys started talking about them. Um, I'm now because I I have not played them a bunch. Like, I think I've played the black red one when it first came with like the big sworn stuff, and now I'm kind of tempted to go try them. The differences between them and kind of see that they're much better now. They they play like real decks. Like big score okay. is like like kind of a meme. Like. That makes more sense because I actually thought the deck was bad, so I, I might I might give these another spin. Yeah, I like the Jund one a bit when I was playing it, but I think that the rise of Esper makes me like it just a little bit less. Although I, I'm really high on Glissa, which is why I like that four color Legends deck a lot, as it gets to play Glissa in a way that it lives and attacks some amount of the time. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty solid. Hey, what about you? Um. Yeah, actually, you know, one of the decks that I have played zero of and don't really, you know, I'm not as high on as you guys has been uh, Mono Blue. But every time that I hear you guys talk about that deck, I, I like understand what it's doing, but I feel like I really um, just get a lot more out of like, you know, that understanding and, and really like seeing that, you know, Spencer, you saying that you felt like you played more like a control deck really aligned with my, you know, theory based on looking at the deck lists. Um, about like when it includes Delver and when it doesn't in terms of what its role winds up being and that was really good to hear solidified of just like yeah it does actually just play that way and really try to protect the Haughty Djinn or the Solarian Terror and it's looking for that window 
Yeah, I mean, there are aggressive games, right? Like, just to be clear, I, I, maybe we didn't mention this on the podcast, but there are, like, are games where you get, like, a tear down really fast and you just turn it sideways four times and win. But those are kind of rare. Yeah. Also, there's some games where, like, I don't know, I play, like, five Control Magic post boards on a lot of matchups, and people just, like, come in with a bunch of kill spells or whatever, and I'm just like, yeah, two for one you, yeah, two for one you, you know, stick the hottie gin, eventually you lose. Like, it, it, it is an impressive deck. Um, and it's also just really hard, which is not a good thing. Playing hard decks doesn't give you bonus points. Uh, but um, what I learned from this week is it really helped me sort of define some, like, thoughts that I had, whereas, like, it seems like everything is sort of circulating around, like, these sort of rules, but I hadn't really thought about it. And when looking over sort of the power rankings and talking with y'all, it's sort of like, yeah, there's Toxic, there's Soldiers, there's Red, and then there's Esper Legends. And those are, like, the aggro decks, or, like, the proactive decks. And then those decks are all, like, there's one to pick for each weekend to get underneath Grixis, and then Mono White tries to fight on the right axis to beat Grixis and not lose to one of those decks. And that sort of solidifying that and understanding that was really uh, helpful to me with, with acknowledging the other, you know, parts of the metagame as well. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. And we'll see you guys all next time with another episode of Constructed Criticism. Magic, magic, magic.